This is day four of this November 2020 five-day online session. And we'll resume reading from our collection of teachings uh, from the Chan masters of, well, this is roughly the 11th, 12th century. This is from the book titled Zen Essence, translated and edited by Thomas Cleary. have to always give credit to the uh, translators. Uh, we left off yesterday um, with uh, the legendary uh, Chinese master Da Wei, and now we're moving on. I think this is more or less uh, chronological to another legendary master, Hongzhi. It's more uh, in the uh, Soto uh, branch than the Rinzai. And as usual, I'll be skipping uh, around, skipping over some of these that I don't think lend themselves so well to reading in Taisho. But he starts off, the mind originally is detached from objects. Reality basically has no explanation. This is why a classical Zen master said, our school has no slogans and no doctrine to give people. And then Hongji says, fundamentally it is a matter of people arriving on their own and finding out for themselves. Only then can they talk about it. So to recap, uh, the mind originally is detached from objects. Uh, objects are not apart from mind, but they're still the objects, or the mind is beyond objects. Reality basically has no explanation. Reality has no explanation. Roshi Kaplow always used to quote a Japanese Zen saying, never explain, never explain. That's, uh, even he, I'm sure, would, uh, would not make an absolute out of that. There's a time for explaining. But the point is, explanations will never be adequate for this mind that is beyond our ordinary understanding. I love these words of Walt Whitman. Some people believe he may have actually uh, had an awakening. We'll never know. Uh, but this is, this is one of the many things he wrote. There is something that comes to one now and perpetually. It is not what is printed, preached, discussed. It eludes discussing and print. It is not to be put in a book. It is not in this book. 
It is for you, whoever you are. It is no farther from you than your hearing and sight are from you. It is hinted by nearest, commonest, readiest. It is ever provoked by them. Just this, here. It is no farther from you than your hearing and sight are from you. And then Hongji continues, this is why a classical Zen master said, our, our school, that is Zen, has no slogans and no doctrine to give people. Well, Zen, uh, the teaching of Zen, uh, reflects uh, the Dharma, which is rich with doctrine. But the point is that uh, we can't be limited, we can't be attached to doctrine. Fundamentally, Hongji says, it's a matter of people arriving on their own and finding out for themselves. In other words, direct experience. Zen is the school of direct experience. Here's another one by Hongji. Ever since the time of the Buddha and the founders of Zen, there has never been any essential distinction between ordained and lay people, in the sense that everyone who has true personal experience of realization is said to have entered the school of the enlightened mind and penetrated the source. This... Uh, Maybe to most of us, this is, wouldn't be a surprising statement, of course. We all equally share this enlightened mind. Um, so, of course, there's no essential distinction between ordained and lay people. But at the time, it may uh, have been a bit controversial to make such a statement because for many centuries, there was this bright line between those who were ordained and those who were not. Hongji here is pointing us back to the, the essential. Ordained, ordained people um, are charged with preserving um, carrying on the tradition of Buddhism, of the Dharma. That's different from any essential um, qualities, which is beyond lay or ordained. Here's what I'm going to read. It's just so, because it's so... Uh, it just sparkles with live words. 
these these masters, uh, many of them were were tremendously gifted with uh, words. Here, Hongji says the worldly life of people who have mastered Zen is buoyant and unbridled, like clouds making rain, like the moon in a stream, like an orchid in a recondite spot, a hidden hidden spot, like spring in living beings. Their action is not self-conscious, yet their responses have order. This is what those who have mastered Zen do. This uh, this clause here, yet their responses have have order. Um, from the the writings that have come down to us from these early days of Zen, it seemed like uh, the, the, the monasteries had their share of these um, these characters, these kind of posers who would try to flaunt their spontaneity um, and be provocative in what they said and they did, acting wild because they thought that somehow meant that you have understanding. So when Hongji says here, yet their responses have order, in other words, uh, these masters that Hongji is talking about, there is an order to their actions and their words. It's not just blurting things out uh, like a like a child. He goes on, it is also necessary to turn back to the source, to set foot on the realm of peace, plunge into the realm of purity, and stand alone without companions going all the way back through the road beyond the Buddhas. That is to the eternal, the beginningless, beginningless time, timeless time. Stand alone. Of course, he's not talking about being... um, isolated from others, even physically, as something that would be expected. Alone here would be the opposite of the word lonely. Stand alone, complete, complete in oneself. And when feeling complete, then one is truly free to find others, associate with others, enjoy others, friendship. But one is not compelled as a matter of depending on others. So alone means self-sufficient. Very few of these masters spent much of their, their lives alone. They were in communities, monastic communities, big ones often, Hundreds and hundreds of monks. We know so little about what that was like uh, interpersonally to be embedded in a monastery of hundreds of monks. Um, 
many of them very young, and a good number of them uh, without having any real uh, mind that seeks the way, um, but having been brought there by their parents because the parents couldn't afford to keep the children and the monasteries would then raise the children. There were something like orphanages, uh, one, one part of monasteries. And uh, it would be a rare one of these, these kids who were brought there uh, who would turn out to be a real enlightened master. It's also the, not just children, but uh, scholars say that, that uh, some of the hundreds of monks in these monasteries would have come there just to avoid the draft. or to avoid taxation. Those are two of the uh, impure motives that, um, that would bring people of that time into monasteries. So you can only wonder what, oh, what kind of things went on there, and what kind of um, maybe even unsavory characters there were well, we've read about some of them in koans and in biographical accounts. One thing that I've always been grateful for uh, is that we don't have, yet, in North America, we don't have uh, these, these characters who, um, well, I just referred to them, who think it's their business to go around shocking people or, or um, pretending to have some understanding when they don't and pretending in a way that is very theatrical of uh, thinking again that to be wild means to be free. Wild doesn't mean free. Wild means untamed can mean the most, it can be those who are most um, driven by their impulses and desires. That's not freedom. There are those who um, admired our 45th president because he was so free, free to be himself. Wild. Putting his thumb in the eyes of the political establishment. But then Hong Ji continues, only then, that is when we stand alone, going all the way through, only then can you fully comprehend the center and the extremes penetrate the very top and the very bottom and freely kill and enliven, roll up and roll out. The center and the extremes. Oh, we can say the, the, the root and the branches. 
maybe the leaves and the branches and and this and versus the the center the very top and the very bottom that is the bottom being the the essence of it all the top duh, i don't know manifestations of that freely kill and enliven it is to negate to wipe clean and uh, enliven, roll up and roll out. It is the free functioning of this enlightened nature. <clears throat> he continues. When Zen practice is completely developed, there is no center, no extremes. There are no edges or corners. It is perfectly round and frictionless. A very, very, very advanced state of realization. Perfectly round and frictionless. A circle circle is about as close as we can we can come to showing our true nature in form as close as we can come to a, a symbol an image of our true nature because the circle well it has no beginning or end in that sense, we could say it's timeless, it's perfect. You can have a, a larger circle or a smaller circle, but every circle is just perfect, just as it is. These, these qualities, no center, no extremes, no edges or corners, we hear Sansan in Affirming Faith in Mind, Natu, the mind of non-differentiation, the absolute completeness of our nature. No inside or outside no opposition. And anyone um, seasoned in Zen knows that that circle, what the Japanese call an enso, which we, which we have the most magnificent one out at Chapin Mill, as I remember from long ago when I was at Chapin Mill, and they have this big, big Enso calligraphic circle. That itself cannot, cannot encompass this essential nature of ours. It's just, it hints at it. It points to it. He uh, 
disciple of Joshu, Zhaozhou, asked him uh, on what should, uh, let's see, something like, uh, on where should I put my mind? Or what is, where should one uh, who is practicing the Dharma put his mind? And Zhaozhou replied, where there is no design. Where there's no design. That can be taken in a couple of ways, where there's, where there's no in, intention, no agenda, you know, uh, or it can mean literally no form, no design. I'm guessing that like, like me, um, many people, uh, especially in their earlier years of, of, uh, do, doing Zazen, uh, find the, uh, coming before them, uh, images, uh, I don't mean makyo, I don't mean hallucinations on the wall. I mean that uh, one can get a sense, let's say Mu, uh, the koan Mu, one can get a sense of it being, having some kind of design, some, yeah, hard to, hard to articulate. Um, but uh, if it, if it, if it has some kind of design, if there's any kind of inside or outside, any kind of shading or form to it in our mind, then it can't be it. With the breath too, um, we, we advise people not to picture the breath. That's, an, that's another a fairly common thing one goes through is picturing these, whatever, this shaft of air going up and down. Um, yeah, we don't want to fight that, but also not to cultivate any, any kind of image of the breath. And then not unrelated to what we just read, Hongji says, when you understand and arrive at the emptiness of all things, then you are independent of every state of mind and transcend every situation. Independent. Um, maybe uh, another translation would be detached. You're not attached to any state of mind. Independent has this, this connotation of uh, I don't know. To me, it, it sounds too much like separation. I'm independent. I'm this, not that. But uh, detached from every state, I'm not attached. He goes on, the original light is everywhere and you then adapt to the potential at hand. Everything you meet is the Dharma. Ah, this is a marvelous perspective. Everything you meet is the Dharma. Everyone you meet is the Buddha.
to see everything that happens to us as the as a manifestation of the law the truth can really be exhilarating the smallest thing everything is it we can't get away from it is dharma nothing could possibly be outside it another uh another exchange involving jiao jiao uh, where the questioner the monk says is there any teaching in the distant mountains where no one is present and uh, jiao jiao said large rocks are large small rocks are small things as they are people as they are whole and complete lacking nothing He goes on, Hongji, while subtly aware of all circumstances, you are empty and have no subjective stance towards them. Empty, of course, means free of thoughts. You are empty and have no subjective stance toward them. Like the breeze in the pines, the moon in the water, there is a clear and light harmony. You have no coming and going mind and you do not linger over appearances. No coming and going mind. Um, maybe we can understand that there's no sense of having to get somewhere that's better than where we are. Which, uh, which engenders restlessness, boredom, impatience no coming or going mind means to be at rest in this here well that takes a lot of practice to reach that sense of repose And one more paragraph here from Hongji in this, in this passage. The essence is in being inwardly open and accommodating while outwardly responsive without unrest. Inwardly open and accommodating. Accommodating is a wonderful Buddhist word. Uh, like this ideal in Zen of clouds and water that are always accommodating themselves to the conditions, to the circumstances, or in the case of water, to the container, accommodating itself to the shape of the container. 
be like spring causing the flowers to bloom, like a mirror reflecting images, and you will naturally emerge aloof of all tumult. Here's another one from Hongji. The time when you, quote, see the sun in daytime and see the moon at night, when you are not deceived, is the normal behavior of a Zen practitioner, naturally without edges or seams. To see the sun in daytime and see the moon at night. What could be more ordinary, more simple, without other things cluttering one's perceptions. He says, if you want to attain this kind of normalcy, you have to put an end to the subtle pounding and weaving that goes on in your mind. Why Hongji really captures how many of us have felt at times um, when we're sitting, pounding and weaving that goes on in your mind. St. Augustine put it this way, an ill-regulated mind is its own punishment. Don't we know that? This uh, normalcy he refers to, seeing the sun in the daytime and so forth, this is, this is where we're being led through Zen practice it, to back to just things as they are, without anything in excess. Zen practice is, is a practice of stripping away the non-essentials in how we, how we see things, how we respond to things, becoming simpler. You know this uh, famous saying that uh, before we come to Zen practice, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. Ho-hum, blah, blah. Then after, at some point after, then it's different. Now, mountains are not mountains and rivers are not rivers. Now our, our basic premise of perception has been pulled away from us. But then, if we continue still further, then mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. Things have are different but the same. The same but different. 
the uh, ne- next master, Ying An. Some of these guys I'd never heard of before reading this book. Let's assume he was about the same period of history, 12th century, maybe 13th century. Doesn't give dates here. He says the mind of Zen adepts, Zen practitioners, uh, is straight as a bowstring, like a long sword against the sky, cutting through confusion wherever they may be. Uh, the bowstring, that's the the origin of our periodical Zenbo. Uh, it's always been a little confusion that some people uh, think of it as Zen bow, making a bow. I've heard that at uh, the the association of, association of Zen teachers, American, so, yeah, that. Uh, some sometimes they might make a reference to Zen Bao. Okay, that's all right too. But the idea we used to have it in the masthead: uh, the mind of the Zen adept is taut, ready like a drawn bow. Taut is a great word. Um, it's not tense. Getting being tense does us no good at all. But taught uh, conveys this readiness. We're poised to respond. I talked earlier in the session about being responsive. Those of you who know that uh, that picture of Guan Yin, the Bodhisattva. Um, with one knee up, seated with one knee up. It's, um, I guess, um, people in art, uh, Buddhist art, call that the, uh, the posture of royal ease. One leg is down, the other knee is drawn up toward the chest. Um, really, that's also, it shows a state of readiness, ready to push off from that seat to help others to respond to what's needed. I think that's that is more important than ease. But back to this, uh, the mind of, of Zen adapts as straight as a, a bowstring. And he goes on, worldly wealth and status, uh, nobility and extravagance, mundane desires and all the ups and downs of life cannot affect them. Again, very advanced state. Fame and profit, judgments of right and wrong, and all the possible states of being cannot trap them. Well, such a such a state is hard earned. There are thousands, tens of thousands of hours of 
facing oneself, facing the wall in oneself, running up against all kinds of obstacles in the mind and the body, pain, self-doubt, confusion, restlessness, boredom, cravings, states of adversity, not liking this, not liking that. And then passing through all that, just through perseverance, not getting waylaid, not, not reacting to circumstances, conditions as they are, but just forging on with the help of the practice you're working on. All the ups and downs of life cannot affect them. This is mostly what Sashin is, by the way, is facing the ups and downs, the dry periods, the, feel, the periods of feeling blocked, frustrated, alternating with maybe some, some glimpses of that kind of freedom when we're beyond thought, when we're one with the practice. And this is pretty much the substance of Sashin, weathering these, these, well, if not storms, then different conditions. And again, not getting waylaid by any of them. All the ups and downs of life. And, and of course, the, the, the more, the more to the degree that we master that steadfastness in the midst of ups and downs, the more we will be able to do that in daily life. Of course, this is, this is Sashin or even just sitting, daily sitting. It's not some exotic, uh, ethereal uh, state that uh, is un, un, unrelated to daily life. It's, it's, it's training us. We're being trained uh, in not reacting to these things, but, but we're being trained in having the faith that beyond the ups and downs, there is something that we can find that will bring us through these, whatever the choppy waters are, uh, that will ferry us across to the other shore. Eh, you don't have to think of it in those terms if you don't want to, but that is just this, this faith in one's own nature, which in, in the form of breath practice or the koan or shikantaza, it's just that faith that in, in that which is beyond changing conditions. There's nothing that, that offers us more of a, of a resource uh, in this world that now seems more and more tumultuous a way to to preserve our sanity
and and it it, it becomes more and more obvious uh, to the degree that we can find this stillness that we cultivate through the practice. This eye of the hurricane. A master put it this way, great winds are powerless to disturb the water of a deep well. Here's another one from Ying An, Zen Master Ying An. Zen has nothing to grab onto. When people who practice Zen don't see it, that's because they approach too eagerly. Or in other words, because they're grasping. They think there's something they can grasp. So good luck. I think we first um, get a, an inkling of this when we change from counting the breath to following the breath. And, uh, and now we don't have those numbers to rely on and we're, we can feel like we've lost our bearings and a little bit uh, out to sea. But that doesn't mean that we have to go scampering back to get back to the numbers. We learn to navigate those seas, the changes, the winds of the mind. We learn that they don't need to be a problem if we just hold fast to the practice, the breath, in that case. That we can... Um, we can, we can find our way through all of these fluctuations in the mind. And we don't need to know where we're going. We don't need to understand the process. Just the practice, just the breath, just the koan. remember when I was working on Moo and of course grasping, greedy for Kensho and uh, greedy to bust through Moo and uh, it came to me, it's like, it was like trying to, trying to grab a bar of wet soap. We only, we only resolve that problem when we stop trying to grab and just Look, look directly in the, in, the, in the case of a koan with an inquiring, a questioning, a wondering, a wondering mind. That's not grasping. To the degree that we are sincerely wondering about the koan, then we're not grasping.
is one last very short paragraph. If mature people, meaning those who are clear about their practice, about the need for practice, and maybe having, as a result of having gotten something out of the practice, if mature people want to cut off the road of birth and death, of course, come to awakening, they should relinquish what they have been holding dear so that their senses become clean and naked. One day they will gain insight and the road of birth and death is sure to end. That phrase, let's not misunderstand it. They should relinquish what they have been holding dear. doesn't mean your partner, your children, your job even, your house. What is it we hold most dear? Our thoughts. That's what we clutch at most ferociously. Our thoughts, our opinions, our opinions. We see it in the firming faith of mind. Just let those fond opinions go. These are the things that really hinder us. Not this relationship or that relationship that is dear to us. It's all about the thought forms that we cling to. We have to, we have to resolve to even to say, let go of them. We don't need to think about letting go of them. We just have to turn our attention to the practice. And then that's where the letting go happens. You don't have to make another, add a new thing. Oh, now I have to let go of my thoughts and opinions. No, just turn, swivel your attention back over and over again, back to the practice. And that's where those thoughts and opinions and everything else uh, evaporates. Our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows.